Colossians this morning. Uh, we're going to jump into chapter 2 of Colossians. Uh, and so if you've got a Bible with you this morning, then have a, let, let's have a turn to it. Just carrying on from where uh, Olivier led us last week. So we're going to be reading from chapter, chapter 2 and verse 6. And we're just going to read up to verse 15. And I'm not going to cover everything in these verses this morning. There's a lot in these verses. Uh, and especially the latter verses of this, we're going to look at again in a couple of weeks. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of repeat some of these verses in a couple of weeks. But if you've got a Bible with you, <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2, um, verse 6 to 15. Paul writes this, and it's almost the center hub of what he's writing in this whole letter. It's the, it's the, spoke, it's the, it's the hub that all the spokes come from in this letter. He says this, and now just as you have accepted Christ, or in some translations, just as you've received Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots go down into him, and let your lives be built on him. And then your faith will grow strong in the truth you will taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. And so you are also complete for your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature, For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins, and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away, and then God made you alive with Christ. That's good news, isn't it? He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges, or if you want the real Greek, he obliterated it. He destroyed the charges against us and took them away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross of Christ. It's good news. Let's pray. Lord God, we've already been singing this morning and thanking this morning that you are our refuge and that you are our tower. But more importantly than that, that you are our Father. And so, Lord God, we, we take shelter in that today, Lord God. Uh, as Paul encourages us, we want to root ourselves in that, Lord God. And as we, as we look at this passage this morning, may our eyes turn to you. May our hearts be just become more aware of the fullness that we have in you, Lord Jesus. And so help us this morning. Spirit, go before us this morning. Uh, move on upon us, Lord God. Open us up and say to us deeply in, a, in the innermost of our innermost being, Lord God, what you long for us to hear, Lord God. May we know that in you is life and life in all its fullness, Lord God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's a big passage, isn't it? It's a beautiful passage. And I wasn't sure quite how to start talking about a passage, and so we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about a carrot instead. Now, if I was to ask you what color is a carrot, you would say, nice bit of partage, come on, a bit of participation. If I was to ask you what color a carrot is, you would say, it's not a trick question. You're absolutely right. Your eyes are working fine. You don't need glasses. It's okay. Carrots are orange. But if I was to go back in time, if I was possibly able to do that, and I was to go back 400 years, and I was to ask that question, no one would have said orange. Instead, they would have said purple. That's generally what the color carrots were. They were purple. And if you were into scavenging around and you wanted to scavenge in a wild, in a wild then you'd maybe find a white carrot somewhere and you'd occasionally find a yellow carrot. But then something happened 
that revolutionized carrots forever. I can see you're amazed already. I've got you hooked. So back in the 16th century, the Dutch lowlands decided to rebel against the Spanish rule. They decided to declare independence from Spain. And there's a gentleman called William the Silent, who became known as William I. He was the leader of this rebellion, and he was the instigator of it. He was also the prince of a territory called, not carrot, but orange. And so he started off. Now, as the story goes, he didn't live to see Dutch's independence from Spain, but nevertheless, he's revered by the Dutch as the father of the nation. And the House of Orange, which is the house he was a part of, they still lead the Netherlands today. The royalty is still the House of Orange. And so in gratitude, the Dutch took to the color orange in a big way. They're huge fans of orange. If you follow football, there's a reason why their kit is orange. And it's a big symbolic color for them. It's very pride. It speaks of their national pride. And if you ever find yourself on, in Holland or in the Netherlands on the, on the Dutch independence at the end of April, you will see orange everywhere. It floods the streets. What you might not know is because of Dutch independence, your carrots are orange. Every day is a school day. You can impress your work colleagues and family with that later on. And the reason is because the Dutch farmers were so impressed with what William Orange did They decided to go out, find the yellow carrots in the wild, and they selectively bred them to produce orange carrots. And 400 years later, we're still growing, and we're still eating orange carrots. And if someone put a purple one on your plate in a restaurant, you'd probably think something was funky with that, wouldn't you? We're so used to it. In some way, you could say the old has gone and the new has come, and and we've embraced the new. And if you didn't already know that, I guarantee you'll never look at a carrot the same way ever again, will you? I only discovered that a few weeks ago, and every now I just, there's times I'm sat at home just stirring at carrots, just thinking about it, I'm not really. But you'll never look at a carrot in the same way again. Now, if we wanted to, we could call what happened to the carrot branding. And yes, before there was TikTok, before there was Apple, before there was things like Bird's Custard and EasyJet, branding and marketing already existed. But more than that, it's more than just branding, it's really about Our identity is about making ourselves known. There's a moment in someone's history that they want to declare and talk about. And if you think about it, ever since the first human handprint was left on the side of an ancient cave wall, humanity has always been doing things that make a statement about who we are. We've always been seeking to shape and express who we are. And in many ways, we are all like carrots. I'm not about your fake tan this morning. Not that I can see any fake tams in the room. But we're all like carrots. Like carrots selectively bred by Dutch farmers. We are in some way, each of us, we select what is important to defining who we are and how we express who we are. You are a carrot this morning, if that's okay. It's a compliment. Years ago, a number of years ago, there was once a great thinker and an anthropologist, there's a big word, so someone who studies humanity uh, called Ernest Becker. And he wrote a book, a prize-winning book called The Denial of Death. That's a nice, pleasant title for a book, isn't it? The Denial of Death. And within that book, Ernest Becker made the argument that every human, every child, not just every child, but every human, is in this need for self-worth. And that our need for self-worth is the condition for our life. And basically what he's saying is from the moment that we are born, we try and make sense of our world and we try and make sense of who we are in our world. And as we grow 
And as we develop from babies to toddlers, from toddlers to primary school, from primary school to teenagers, from teenagers to adults, this desire to know who we are in this world around us never leaves us. It never escapes us. In fact, it haunts us. That's what Ernest Becker says. It haunts us every day. Ernest Becker argues, he says, that everyone is seeking what he calls cosmic significance. And he doesn't mean that everyone's seeking to be someone cosmic or someone big and someone famous on a cosmic scale. He's just simply saying that we all want to be someone. In all of this world around us, we want to know that we are someone. We want to have an identity. We want to know that our existence has not been in vain. We want to be worth something, not just in our own eyes, but in the eyes of others. We want to know who we are, and so we constantly seek something to complete us, if that makes sense. We constantly seek something or someone to reinforce our significance, whether that something's external to us or internal to us. In other words, our desire for significance, to be somebody, to have an identity, means that all of us, as Ernest Becker puts it, will naturally live for something. All of us naturally live for something. Becker states that this desire for worth is so powerful in every single one of us that essentially whatever we live for, and we all live for something, whatever we decide to base our identity on and our value on, then we deify it. We make it God with a little g. We all have gods with a little g. We will look to it with worshipful devotion. And we'll consider it God, even if we're not religious. And he's not making a case for God, because Ernest Becker was an atheist. He wasn't making a case for God. He's just recognized that humans religiously seek out things to redeem us. Does that make sense? You with me so far? And he's right. Because we live in a society that claims to be irreligious. But I think religion's bigger than it's ever been. Isn't it? When you look at our world, people are living for things all the time. There are more gods now with a little g than has ever been in human history. There's probably more worship now than has ever been in human history. We will lay our lives down to gain something in order to have something, to be something. And he uses various examples from our romantic experiences, from our work from our pleasures, and he says we place the burden of God, and I'm hoping that if we live for these things, then we'll finally find fulfillment, and we'll find meaning. But, he notes, the problem is that when those things become our all, when our worth is ultimately tied up in them, then when we discover that those things have shortcomings, or they're not all that we hope them to be, then suddenly our identity crumbles. We don't know who we are without them. And when those things fail us, or we fail to live up to the standards those things ask of us, then we feel condemned to nothingness, he says. He's the late pastor and teacher, Timothy Keller, who who died a couple of weeks ago. And he wrote a great book called The Reason for God. If you've never read it, I'd, I'd recommend that you read it. And he picks up on Ernest Becker's points. And he makes the point that in traditional cultures around our world, and our identities are normally based on fulfilling our family's expectations or our community's expectations, Whereas in more modern cultures, like in the UK and in America, we tend to look to our achievements or our social status or our talents or our love relationships to define who we are. And I'd add to that, I'd add to that in the modern world, I'd say that some of us got our sense of self from our material goods. We never feel ourself if we don't have the latest thing. Some of us don't get get our sense of self from our looks 
or our attraction or our physique. Some of us get our, self, our sense of self from how many likes we get on social media. That's a huge thing today. That if no one likes this post, then I'm not worth anything. And if someone gives it a thumbs down, then the world crashes out. We feel like that over time. And whatever the source is, what we need to realize, whatever the source of your self-worth is, wherever you place it, it comes with a burden. It comes with a burden. If your identity is built on having wealth or beauty or a successful career or fulfilling family expectations or personal achievements, then we have to understand that those things set a standard to us that we feel we must live up to in order to have our identity. And when we fail to live up to that standard, then those things are very, very unforgiving. So if you live for your career and you don't do well, then you'll feel like a failure the rest of your life. It's true, isn't it? If your identity is based on your beauty and you don't live up to the standards that you think is beautiful and refined, then actually you'll feel ugly all your life. I'm speaking from experience, though. I'm not expecting an R, don't worry. And the thing is, if it's your beauty, then actually the culture standard of what is beautiful changes all the time. So you'll never actually catch up to the standard at all. You'll constantly feel ugly. And then what will happen one day is you'll wake up and you'll realize you're old and you'll feel condemned to ugliness for the rest of your life. If that's your standard, if that's where you get your worth. If you live to be popular, because that's a big one, isn't it? If you live to be popular and well-liked by everyone, then when you hear someone say something bad about you, or when you discover that there's someone who doesn't like you, and I assure you this morning, I don't mean this in a negative way, there is someone out there who doesn't like you, I've probably got a whole crowd of them, but you, you've at least got maybe someone, there'll be someone who doesn't like you, it will nag you. It will nag you persistently. It will nag and nag and nag at you the fact that there is someone who does not like you if your identity is based on being popular. And it will change you, because you'll try and change so that they will like you. What you'll realize is that you that they like is not really you, it's just a you that you are pretending to be in order to be liked. That makes sense. Or worse, because you know they don't like you, will you choose not to like them? And so what it turns you to do is it turns you to talk to other people about why they are not likable people. So even though popularity is your goal in life, unpopularity is really your master and what you're living for, if that makes sense. And I'm speaking again from experience. But whatever it is, and we all have something, whenever you fail at the standard you're living to, it will punish you. And it's relentless in it. And again, we'll feel condemned to nothingness and we'll feel this sense of guilt in our lives. It's funny, isn't it? When people talk about guilt, they normally talk about it in this sense with if you're religious or you follow God. Uh, I know a number of people have said, well, if I follow God, then I'm going to be pursued by guilt for the rest of my life. And, and that's not true at all. I've followed Jesus Christ for over 20 years now and I don't feel pursued by guilt one single bit. What I have found, though, is we are all pursued by guilt when we live up to these standards because we're pursued and we know that we're failing to live up these standards to achieve this identity. And it's these things that condemn us. And so I have to ask you this morning, and I'm asking you this, whoever you are, regardless of who you are, but what are you building your identity on? What are you rooted in? What are you living for? And what do you think Sorry, who do you think you are is the big question. And how is it working out for you? And how much guilt is involved in it? And how much 
this sense of condemned to nothingness and meaningless is in it. And in a passage we just read, Paul wants the Colossians to get their roots into Jesus. That's good things, isn't it? And he wants them to keep building their lives on Jesus. He wants them to nourish themselves and to stabilize themselves on who Jesus is. Not who they are, but who Jesus is. Paul wants them to know that they are complete in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. You are complete in your union with Jesus Christ. And they're all sentences that speak of our identity. And Paul says a similar thing in chapter 3 of verse 3 in the same letter. He reminds them there that our real life, our truest self, is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, with Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, you will discover your truest self, who you are made to be. Does that make sense? That the striving and the searching and the restlessness, and the despair, well, it can stop. Because in Jesus Christ, you are complete. And in the verses that follow in Colossians chapter 2, and verse 11 to 15, Paul talks about why we can be confident of this. And then he talks about why we don't need to be driven by the guilt-laden kind of practices that the false teachers are trying to push onto them as he goes on to in verse 16 to 23. And we'll touch on those things next week. But in short, they can be confident that they are complete in Christ because of who Jesus is. He is supreme, as I talked about the other week. He is the highest, the greatest, and the best. And if you want the highest and the greatest and the best in life, then you can't get better than Jesus, who's the best. You can't get higher than Jesus, who's the highest. And you can't get greater than Jesus, who's the greatest. That is Paul's premise. And in this passage, he repeats what he's already been singing about in his song in the verse chapter. He wants them to remember Jesus' deity in verse 9. When he talks about he is the fullness of God. He he again repeats in verse 10 that Jesus is the king. He's the Lord of every ruler and authority. He's the king of all creation. But most importantly in verses 11 to 15. He he reminds them of Jesus' supreme victory on the cross. He reminds them of Jesus' work. Jesus' performance. What he has done. He wants them to know who they are. Who they really are. And he wants them to remember it in such a way that it becomes foundational to their lives. That who they are, their truest self, is not a product of what they have done. Our truest self is not a product of what we have done. Our truest identity is not a product of what we have earned or paid for or achieved. It doesn't come from our accomplishments. Rather, it's found and can only be found in what Jesus Christ has done for us. You are who you are because of what Jesus Christ has done. See, Paul focuses on the cross because he wants them to grasp the work of the cross in their lives. Now again, we'll look at that a bit more in a couple of weeks' time after the communion meal uh, next week, the week after that. But in the larger framework of Paul's letter, I want us to understand, I want us to realize that the cross isn't merely about forgiveness, though it involves that. Of course it involves that. All has been forgiven. The charges have been canceled. They've been eliminated. They've been decimated. But it includes that. But it's bigger than forgiveness. What God has done on the cross is restoration. It's renewal. It's a new creation. It's God making us into the people we were originally made to be. It's God reconciling us, as Paul has already said in the previous chapter. It's God reconciling us, God pulling us into the identity he intended us to have from the very beginning. It's God making us who we were made for. We were made for God. That's good, isn't it? 
You weren't made for despair. You weren't made for nothingness. You were made for God. And not just to believe that there is a God in some vague general sense, but to love God supremely. For God to be the center of your life and for God to be the center of your identity above anything else. Or as the African church father Augustine put it, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. In the 19th century, sorry to bore you with names this morning, I'm going to throw a lot of names at you. But in the 19th century, there was a Dutch philosopher. I don't know if he dressed in orange. I don't know. But he was a Dutch philosopher, sorry, a Danish philosopher. I don't know why I've got Dutch there. I've typed these Danish typo. And his name was Soren Kierkegaard. I'm not going to struggle saying Kierkegaard quite a bit. Forgive me for that. And he wrote a book called The Sickness Unto Death. That's another cheerful title of a book, isn't it? Hope these make it onto your reading list. Sickness Unto Death. And long before Ernest Becker talked about our search for identity and our desire for worth, Kierkegaard had already talked about this nagging despair we feel trying to know who we are. But as a Christian, Kierkegaard rooted this despair, this problem of our despair, this problem of desiring to know who we are. He, he put it in our desire to become ourselves, to discover our identity apart from God. That's where the despair comes from, to try and discover ourselves and who we are apart from God. And that was Kierkegaard's definition of sin. And rightly, and I think it's a good decision in a, in a way that aligns with Scripture, he didn't see sin as primarily a matter of breaking rules. That's all the symptoms of it. That's just symptoms. He saw sin as the severing of a relational tie. He saw it as humanity seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to their life and happiness than God. Does that make sense? He also recognized, like Ernest Becker did afterwards, that our attempt to establish our identity means that we will live for something. We all live for something in order to complete us, in order to redeem us. That although in our language, we have got written of God in a big G. We still have little gods with little Gs. And they are the center of our existence. And like the atheist Ernest Becker, he too noticed that when something fails us, when these little gods fail us, or we fail to obtain that something that we thought they would give us, or when we discover the things we thought would define us and deliver us, actually don't define and deliver us, then they actually condemn us and we feel more worthless. Our gods with little Gs, punish us, they condemn us, they enslave us. And even if we get what we hoped for and we achieve what we thought would save us, we still feel despair because when we finally get there, we realize that we are still us. Fundamentally, we are still the same person. Or as a character in a Neil Gaiman book put it, it's like the people who believe they'll be happy if they go and live somewhere else. But they learn it doesn't work that way because wherever you go, you take yourself with you. And so whatever you live for, you take you with you. If you think your work will complete you and you think the promotion will complete you, you will get there and you'll find you are still the same with the promotion. If you think that romantic relationship will complete you, and there's nothing wrong with a romantic relationship, there's nothing wrong with a career, but if you think it completes you, you'll find when you get there, you are still you in that relationship. You haven't changed. So we don't change, we just travel. Don't we? We just travel. And again, I'm saying that from an experience. And again, God made us in his image. I know I'm repeating myself this morning. I'm doing it purposely. To be loved by him. To love him. To reflect God's beauty and God's greatness and God's creativity and great God's wonder. And we are only truly complete with him. Our little gods, our little idols will never complete us. There's a Hebrew word 
a Hebrew word called shuva. And it turns up all over the Old Testament and it turns up over the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, the Old, the Old Testament prophets constantly word, used this word shuva. Jesus used it as he talked about God's kingdom, God's kingdom. And after his resurrections, the early disciples used it when talking about our reception to his kingdom, this kingdom that has come through Jesus. Teshuva is a word that's often translated as repent. But because of all the baggage that that word carries, we often lose its original direction. But it simply means return. It simply means come on home. Come back. And God's desire is that we would return to who we are originally created to be before we started chasing our little gods and our little idols. That we'd stop trying to perform and earn an identity. That we'd stop trying to shop for it and win it for something that only ever really pays out in condemning us and punishing us. And we'd actually start living in the reality of who God has made us to be. And the thing is, unlike our attempts of searching for identity... Unlike our true self and trying to search for identity in something that we can earn or something we can achieve or something we can purchase or something we can perform for, this identity doesn't, isn't something we can win. It isn't something we can earn. It isn't something we can pay for. It's something that is given. That's good, isn't it? It's a gift from God. It's a work of God alone. This identity is something we receive. It's good news. If I was to paraphrase Paul's words in Colossians 2 and verse 6 to 7, I'd put it this way. Just as you've received Jesus, keep receiving Jesus. Stop trying to earn it. Keep receiving Jesus. Nourish yourself in what he has done for you. Build yourself on the identity he gives to you. Don't be distracted by people telling you to pursue yourself elsewhere or to win something elsewhere. Get established in the identity that God has won for you on his cross. See, Paul, like the early Christians, they consistently insisted that because of Jesus' lordship, because of his victory on the cross, and something in our identity has profoundly changed forever. Because of our union with Christ and his death, something within us has died. Because of our union in Christ with his resurrection, something within us has come alive. Or as Paul says elsewhere, in Christ there is a new come on, you know this verse. In Christ there is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And all this newness of life, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, is from God who brought us back to himself through what Christ has done. And it's not that you and me are now perfect. Because I don't know, but maybe it's just not me who's perfect. I don't know. It's not that we have never done anything wrong, because we have. And it's not that we'll never struggle or stumble and get things wrong. But because of Jesus, who you and I were originally made to be has been remade. We are a new creation. And Paul wants the Colossians to get their roots into this new identity. He wants them to know that who you were is not who you now are. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. And if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, well, I could put it this way. Christians are people who are learning to know who they are in Jesus. We're trusting in his lordship. We've stopped seeking ourselves, and we just want to know Jesus more and more. We've stopped seeking ourselves, because when I seek myself, I just find condemnation. But Jesus grants me life and identity and forgiveness. 
See, we've got to get our roots into this new identity. We've got to explore it. We've got to unpack it, as Paul's going to say in the rest of this letter. We've got to start letting what God has said about us and what God has done for us shape who we are and what we say about ourselves. And so live like you are complete. Because in the relationship with the fullness of Jesus' Lordship, you are complete. That's good, isn't it? You don't have to go searching for an identity, seeking and living for other things to complete you, regardless of if they're good or bad. If Jesus is Lord and he is Lord, let his Lordship be the center of your life. And if we grasp this, we won't be driven or dominated by some anxiety or despair over some sort of cosmic significance that we want in life. Instead, as Paul notes in the end of verse 7, he says, instead your lives will overflow with thanksgiving. I'm not an anxious person anymore, but I give thanks. That's good news, isn't it? I'm reminded of two fictional stories. You might have read these, and you might not have done. But one of them, two fictional characters, one of them is the monster that was made by Dr. Frankenstein. You're, you've heard that story, I think. has bolts in his neck, and he's green in the films. He's not in the book, but he's green in the films. And it's a famous book that was written by an author called Murray Shelley. Interesting book. It's not a horror book, really. It's actually very, very good. It talks about the human condition. And if you've ever read the book, you realize that the monster, as he gets named, he doesn't come about because of how Dr. Frankenstein makes him in a laboratory. The monster comes into existence because when it comes alive, its maker, Dr. Frankenstein, screams and abandons it and rejects it. And the monster in the story becomes the monster, really, because it's searching for acceptance. It's searching for value. It's searching for self and it's searching for identity. And the more it searches for self, and the more it searches for its own identity away from its creator, the more and more monstrous it becomes. And its life is made up of haunting and stalking others. And it's very dominating because its self-worth, its pursuit of self-worth is so much the drive of its life. Every person it meets, it's just overpowering. It wants to be loved. And in its search to be loved, it becomes more and more unloving. I know a few people like that. I'm looking at Katie. I'm not, I'm not saying Katie's like that. We just know a few people like that, don't we? The more we search for love, the more unloving we are. And so the monster in the story is so dominated by self-interest. It's so dominated in being accepted. It's so dominated in being, again, an identity that it's incapable of laying itself down for anybody. Does that make sense? It's so concerned with itself, it cannot give itself to anybody or anything. That is a monstrous, dead life. Now, in contrast to that story, in contrast to that character, there's another famous story called Les Miserables by an author called Victor Hugo. And there's a character in that called Jean Valjean who also finds himself in a wretched condition. And he has also known unacceptance. He's known what it's like to be rejected and to be spattered. And he too has searched to be valued and to be appreciated and to be loved. And when he wasn't embraced by others because of his constant experience of being rejected, his heart starts to turn against other people. His heart changes. He too becomes a person who lives for himself and dies to for himself, and doesn't give himself to anybody else. And then one day, one day, he has an encounter with a bishop, and I'm going to try and pronounce this in my best French, a bishop called Charles-Francois Benvenu Mariel. I think I've got that right. I'll just call him Bishop from now on. Bishop Bonvenu, I think. I think Bonvenu means welcome, doesn't it? And Bonvenu gives him a welcome. He is a man of welcome. And John Jean is welcomed into his home to stay the night. But in his state of despair, 
In his state of seeking self-interest, he decides to steal from the bishop. And he runs away. But in running away, he gets arrested for it. And then he's destined for more imprisonment, more nothingness, ultimately a dead life that just continues to promote a pursuit of self-interest. However, the bishop, Bishop Bonvenu, he doesn't want that dead life for Jean Valjean. And so he forgives him. And he grants him freedom. And it's not that the bishop has accepted or approved of Valjean's self-absorption and the stealing and anything like that. He embraces him regardless of it. He embraces him regardless of it. And in doing so, bishop dem- the bishop demonstrates an identity that is better than self-interest. He demonstrates an identity that is Christ-like, selfless love. And it's a life-changing moment for Jean Valjean, if you know the story, if you've ever watched the musical or you've seen the film. And in this forgiveness that he is granted, he is given new life. He's given a new identity. And Valjean receives it. Valjean chooses to nourish himself in this radical exception. He chooses to build himself in this radical forgiveness. He decides to root himself in this radical love that he has been shown. He doesn't use, to use, he doesn't use it to nourish his old self. Need to understand that he doesn't use this acceptance to nourish his old self. Rather, he lets this acceptance transform him from the inside out. And so he stops searching for his identity. He stops seeking self-interest. He stops being driven by insecurity and unacceptance. And he simply desires to live worthy, or to put it another way, he simply desires to live a life that is thankful of the radical grace that he was shown. It's a great story. It's a great story. If you've never read Les Miserables, I'd encourage you to read it. And I can't think of another story that reflects better what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has not come to nourish me in my old life. He's come to rescue me and nourish this identity that God has given to us. See, we were dead in our sin, but then God made us alive in Christ. Nourish yourself in that. Nourish yourself in that. And so I have to ask, who are you this morning? Who are you living for? What are you striving to be? What do you think it will give you? What do you think it will do for you? How do you think it will shape you? And how is that striving shaping your life already and how you relate to others, how you relate to yourself? Everybody has to live for something, Tim Keller wrote. And whatever that something is, it becomes Lord of your life, regardless of whether you think of it that way or not. And Jesus, he continues to say, Jesus is the only Lord that if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, he forgives you eternally. We all live for something, and that something is Lord of our life. And Jesus is the only Lord if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, we'll forgive you eternally. It's great, isn't it? So will you, like an orange carrot, will you allow what God has done for you on the cross shape the color of your life and how you express that life to other people? Will you allow it to define the answer that you give to the question of who you are? When John writes his gospel, I don't know if you've noticed this, but he doesn't identify himself with his name, really, or what he's achieved, or what John has done, or how old he is, 
or where he's traveled. When John writes his gospel, his primary identity is, I am the one whom Jesus loved. Let that be where you root yourself this morning, church. Let's pray. Lord, we often sing, I cast my mind to Calvary. But Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet. My Savior on that cursed tree. And we sing it so often, Lord God, but may we realize your passion for us this morning. May we stop chasing after our little gods and our little idols. May we stop making idols out of things that are good but are not meant to be gods. And may, Lord God, we realize what you have called us to, what you have saved us to, how you have recreated us in that wonderful moment of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And may who we are, Lord God, I'm praying this as a man who struggles with security. I'm praying this as a man who struggles with anxiety and depression. That in those stormy times in lives, Lord God, may we, may we root and nourish ourselves in who you say we are and not who we think we are, Lord God. May we not go seeking elsewhere, but may we stabilize our lives on you. Or as you taught us to, Lord Jesus, may we build our lives upon you and what you have said. Lord God, may you be the foundation of our world. May we stop trying to build it on shifting sands and other things that really just fail us and let us down and we just crumble when they do. But may we know, may we know the goodness and the joy that comes from knowing that we are a child of the risen King. Help us, help us to know our identity in you, Lord Jesus, I ask, in your precious name and for your glory and so that we live a life not of despair but a life that just gives you praise and thanksgiving and worship. Amen.